South Hills, I'm excited for where we're going in 2022. My goal is that we would always be growing as a church, building deeper connections with God and intentionally moving towards a place of spiritual maturity. And while many of the things that we're already doing are a great starting place, I believe there are opportunities for us to be even more intentional. That's why we're excited to be launching an updated discipleship growth track. We want to offer opportunities where people can have deeper discipleship, both in the form of classes and life-on-life accountability groups, mentorship opportunities, and leadership development, and even more. Our mission is to lead unchurched people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm excited to share even more details about our new discipleship growth track with you in the coming months. I truly believe this will be our best year as we make a commitment to grow deeper together. Good morning, good morning, Southfield, Santa Clarita. It is your handsome and chubby and funny Pastor Efren. And so we are so glad that you are joining us for our Sunday service. Unfortunately, my family and I, the Pena family, could not uh, be with you there today. Uh, we're on a much-needed uh, weekend getaway. Uh, but do not worry. We'll be back next week. And uh, today, we have an incredible treat for you. Uh, we are finishing and wrapping up our uh, last, the last part of our like and subscribe series. And uh, we have a guest speaker uh, all the way from Costa Mesa. It is Sam Malstadt. Uh, he and his family are here. Guess what? He also has four girls. Woo-hoo! Like the Peñas. Anyway, you're in for a treat. Would you do me the honor? Stand up, hand clap, give a high five to someone, whistle as Sam comes bring this final part of this series. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so as, as Pastor Reference said, my name is Sam. Uh, I'm with you guys, with my wife, Amanda, and our four girls. Uh, he mentioned he kind of like took my whole intro there. I, he did not give me a heads up on that. Uh, we are from Costa Mesa. We're, we have been in Costa Mesa for about six months. We're actually from the Midwest. We're recent. Uh, we're new Californians. And I'll save you the response. Yes, I know. Everyone's moving out of California. We're okay with that, you guys. We're here and we're stoked to be Californians making um, our new home in Costa Mesa. We, we like I mentioned, we, we moved here about six months ago from Kansas City, um, which is, uh, there, that is a city that exists in two states, Missouri and Kansas. So do not say they're from Kansas. <laughs> we, we come from the Missouri side. Anyway, little, little fact. We'll ju- I'm just getting ahead of all of the, you know, the follow-up questions. But we, so we came from Kansas City. We're in Costa Mesa. We go to the South Hills Costa Mesa campus, pastored by Kristen S. Kretu, dear friends of ours. We just uh, absolutely love it. Um, but it was interesting because I went back to Kansas City last week. If there's any football fans in the house that just happened to be the greatest football game ever played in the history of the sport, and I happened to be there in person. It was wild. It was incredible. I flew back, went with my father-in-law. My brothers drove down from Iowa. We all went to the game. Little did we know, we were about to witness just something unimaginable. It was so fun. But it's funny because as I was thinking about this message, the final week of this Like and Subscribe series, and we're talking about spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. And this week is the, the, the corporate spiritual disciplines. It's, it's just so true that certain 
things in life do not have the same impact or depth or meaning when they're done alone. As the kids say, it just hits different when you're with other people. So I was in Kansas City watching the Chiefs play the Bills in Arrowhead Stadium with 75,000 of my closest friends. <laughs> and it was just unreal. No, I wasn't any bigger a Chiefs fan in Arrowhead Stadium than I was all the other games on my couch, but something shifted. The dynamic was different. We all gathered together for one purpose, which is, I suppose, if, if you are telling yourself the truth about it, it's to watch grown men hit each other while you scream like a fool. But there was 74,999 other people doing it, so I was just losing my dang mind, cheering for these, these men running around, and it was wild. Because, see, that stadium, any other day of the week, is just a giant, empty hole in the ground, <laughs> But then on Sunday, it fills up with people who, are, who have a single goal, who are united in purpose, even just for a few hours. They share something so specific in common, and everything about that place changes. It, there's, it, it's similar in our faith. It's the same in our faith. It's different when we gather. It's different, it's more meaningful when we come together because we can only go so far on our own. And, and we exist, I believe, in a, society, in a society that's fallen into this trap of this hyper-personalized, individualistic spirituality. I'm going to do my own thing, my own way. I'm going to just live my own little private, personal faith. And this is like really far removed from the from, this, from the mandates that we see in the scriptures, from how Jesus interacted with his followers, how his disciples behaved in the world, in all the way through church history, it was never meant to be done alone. And while we talked about things like prayer and meditation and fasting, all of these personal disciplines, these are so powerful, the flip side of that same coin is that there is power in gathering. It's when we do it together, when we live out our faith in community. Because see, your faith can be deeply personal, but it cannot be private. Your faith, my faith, our faith can only be fully experienced in community. Because the inward and the outward disciplines, <clears throat> these are what we do for one another and ourselves. But what we're going to talk about this morning are what we do with one another for one another. So we're going to dig in. We're going to talk about confession, everybody's favorite topic. We're going to talk about guidance and worship and celebration, um, which are all corporate disciplines. But first, let's pray together. God, would you uh, awaken us in this moment to your presence now in our lives, in this room, in this world that is soaked in your presence. God, we don't ask you to join us because we know you're here. We ask you to be aware that you're here. Would you open our hearts to you? Would you give us a new perspective? Would you give us a word? Would you show us the next right thing? We know that you're with us and you're for us. 
So we thank you for that. We come at this morning with gratitude and with awe that you are a good God, you're a present God, you're with us and you're for us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So like I mentioned, everybody loves to talk about confession. (laughs) Confession is simply the practice or the act of making something that was private public. It's bringing things out of the dark and into the light. And if, we, we, if I say the word confession, we tend to have this mental image of a confessional, which is you know, like where you get into a wooden phone booth and you talk through a priest through a little screen. And that is part of confession, I suppose. That is as a real component of confession. But confession is also a group exercise. There's a, uh, this, actually, there's this beautiful tradition in the Orthodox Church where every year before Lent, the night before Lent begins, as a final uh, moment of preparation, the, co- the congregation gathers and they begin to confess to one another. So they, the, someone will approach the priest and they will say, forgive me, a sinner. And the priest simply replies, God forgives and I forgive. But that is not where it ends. Because then what that person does is approaches the next person. And they say to that person, forgive me, a sinner. And that person responds, God forgives and I forgive. And they go until Every single person has asked for forgiveness and extended to every other person there forgiveness. I feel like it's so beautiful and powerful because it takes practice, confession, forgiveness, asking for, extending. This is a muscle we must develop, which is why most of us suck at it so much because it's a hard thing to practice. Confession isn't fun. Of an Orthodox priest, a dear friend of mine, and he says, you know, I, what I love about Forgiveness Vespers, this service, is he said, maybe you can fake it for one or two. This is a priest talking, by the way. Maybe, maybe you can fake it for one or two or three people. But when I have to ask every single person in the room for forgiveness, some that I know I'm, I'm just, I've certainly need forgiveness from, and some I don't know, and some I assume I don't, but maybe I do. That does something to you. And then when every single person in that room reminds me that God forgives and that because of that they forgive me, this does something to you. This forms your soul. Because confession isn't fun, but it has the power to free us. It has the power to set us free. James says this. When he's writing this letter to the church, he, he goes on this sequence, and it gets a little weird here. So I want to I talk about this verse. He, he talks about patience. Okay, that feels right. Then he talks about faith. Okay, that feels right. And then he says this in, in chapter 5, verse 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And so I looked it up like, well, hold on. Surely he doesn't mean like 
healed. Like, what is it like a plant? Like, what's he talking about? And this word healed here, it, it means, it, it could mean physical healing, emotional healing, and it also has the, the connotation of a wholeness, or you could say restoration. So James is picking up on a truth here. If we fail to confess to one another, it, it does something damaging in our lives. And if you think about this, if you hold something in, if you keep something private that needs to be drawn into the light, what that does is begins uh, to be covered in shame. And then if you can't handle that shame, the only other alternative you have to confession is justification. Well, I guess it wasn't that big of a deal. I don't think it actually hurt anybody. It's not nearly as bad as what that bozo just did. We begin to justify this stuff when really what it needs to be done is dragged into the light. And what that does is it hardens our hearts. It closes us off to one another. It shuts us down. And James says confession can heal you because over time I think this can physically begin to erode our bodies. It can begin to destroy us emotionally and spiritually and absolutely it will kill relationships. James says confess your sins to one another and be healed. If we want to experience healing and wholeness, we have to bring these things to the light. Whether that's confessing to a, a pastor, a friend, a small group, a trusted advisor, directly to the person you know you need to ask for forgiveness from, this is an act of restoration. You know, we see in the Old Testament, in the, in the scriptures, the sacrificial system, which is really weird to, to read that as a 21st century American and try to make heads or tails of that or try to make sense of that. But if I could just very quickly summarize, the entire sacrificial system that we see in the Hebrew tradition was about returning to and being restored to God. Because when we read something like very um, ancient and a little bit barbaric sounding and looking and feeling, it's hard to make sense of that. And, and, it, and it's hard to, 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 to read that in a loving, through a loving lens. But the reality of the entire system was God calling people back to him. So they, they, they took part in this. They, they owned it. They owned their shortcomings. They said, I've, and I've got skin on the game. I'm coming with something, something to say, like, I, I get the depth of this. I want to draw back to the God who wants my heart. And we're going to do it as a community. Sure, yeah, there's going to be things I have to personally confess. And sometimes there's things we have to confess. This is what's modeled in that system that I think we oftentimes lose. But the power of it, I think, is captured really beautifully in this scripture because it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise, this is the truth that this healing comes from forgiveness. Because God forgives, and I forgive. And if God is just and, and will forgive us our sins, and in that purifies us, then now I stand on a foundation where I can extend that forgiveness. If you ever want to meet the most forgiving people, you, what you'll find out is you've met the people who have been forgiven, 
who, who, who understand the power of the forgiveness they've received. This is how we begin to operate like this. And, and listen, before we move to the next point, I want to give us an opportunity to practice this together. So there's this beautiful prayer of confession that our Anglican brothers and sisters use, and we're going to pray it together. But because like reading something off a screen and trying to do it in unison is a little wonky, let's put it on the screen. I'm going to pray it, because then I'll have been fully confessed, and then we'll do it together. Okay, so it goes like this. Most merciful God, I'll do it, and then we'll do it together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray it together. Most merciful God, we confess we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I guess let's do this. I, I, I wasn't planning to do this, but let's do this. Let's say to one another in the room, God forgives and I forgive. Let's hear it. Let's do it. God forgives and I forgive. Like even the, um, like, ooh, like the squirminess that we probably a lot of us just felt, it shows us. That's a reflection. It's, it's, a, it's, it's showing us this is not easy. This is not fun. These aren't the disciplines that everyone's like, oh, yeah, let me get a little more confession in my life. But this has the power to unlock you. This has the power to free you. So I would invite you to pray this prayer, to make it a routine. And I would invite you to think about the ways that God is faithful and just to forgive you so that when that moment comes where you need to ask for or extend forgiveness, maybe it's just like one little notch easier to do. The next discipline I want to talk about for a moment here is guidance. Guidance simply is the collective wisdom of a community submitted to Christ. Part of the way God speaks to us is through other people that he puts around us. And in fact, you're never going to make sense of following in the way of Jesus on your own. You cannot move forward without other people. And the gift of what we call the body of Christ, this gathering of believers, is that we're all wired differently. We all see the world differently. And we all make our way in the world uniquely. By the way, shameless plug, I'm teaching the Enneagram course in Costa Mesa that you guys heard about. The reason I'm so passionate about it and the reason I teach it is because it helps us see how I see the world differently than how you see the world, how I respond and react to things differently than how you respond and react to things. Because we sort of live this baseline where it's like, I, they're just all kind of missing it. Or like in interactions, like, man, I don't know why we can't get on the same page. Something must be wrong with them. <laughs> we don't always say that, but we kind of carry that around. But the gift of the body of believers is that we're all different. We all see differently. We all respond differently. We all have different and unique experiences. So then when we come together, 
by learning from one another, I can start to see and get out of the ruts I've created for myself that I tend to just slip in. I can experience a broader perspective. I can discover new ways to make sense of this wild thing of, 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 of following in the way of Jesus. I need guidance from a community. Confession is the beginning of a process of healing and wholeness, but guidance is what helps us walk in that healing. Guidance is what, what allows us to live in and into wholeness in our lives. We have to have guidance from other believers. You know, this isn't probably going to surprise anybody in the room, but Jesus was a rabbi who had disciples. <laughs> this is like a little bit one-on-one. If you didn't know that, that's a fun fact about Jesus. That's typically well-known. But what also is fairly well-known but quickly forgotten is disciple simply means student. Because, see, we, we like to say we're followers, we're disciples, whatever, but rarely do we describe ourselves, or quite honestly, if I'm talking about myself, act like a student. Because, see, a student has something to learn. A student knows they have not arrived. And the best students know there is no arrival, that it's always a process. There's always something to be learned, to understood, a, a new area to grow in. And, of course, we learn from reading the scriptures and reading what Jesus said to his followers and even watching how he modeled a way to live in the world. All of these things are so important. But the truth is, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to, like, do the things he says. Not fun, not easy, not natural. Feels very bizarre, right? Because his teachings are not easy. His teachings are countercultural then and now. Love your neighbor. Go the extra mile. Forgive people over and over and over. These are not things our society is like, yeah, more of that. Like, no, these are countercultural. So to live out this ancient faith in a modern context with teachings that are really hard, you're probably not going to be able to just navigate that by yourself. Would you agree? We need one another. Paul says this to his letter to the Philippians. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you and will, who, who God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So there's a reliance on God, 100%, absolutely, with Paul there. But notice that he says you've got to work this out. You don't have to just understand the dogmas. You don't have to just read the Gospels. you got to work this out. This is a work of faith. This is something you live into. We don't need just more information. And listen, I'm grateful that you're here, and I want you to come back next Sunday when Pastor Efren comes back to preach a better sermon. But you don't just need more sermons. We don't need just, we have enough information we need to gather for guidance. We need to live with one another to make sense of how to do this. How do I live this out? We need people around us who can help us navigate that, figure out what is the next right thing for me right now. We need people who are on the same journey but at different spots 
in the journey. We need people to be able to say, yeah, I've been there. And then we need to be able to acknowledge, I've never been here before. Has anybody been here? And then sometimes we're all just plowing new ground together, but we can't do it alone because God is at work in our lives. God is the one doing this work, but we are called to do this work also, and we have to uh, have the guidance from others to do it. Simply put, we do not need more information. We need people to help us navigate it. So get this. In 2011, what is that? 11 years ago? So in 2011, uh, data scientists quantified how much information we take in. And it's the equivalent of reading 174 newspapers every day. So in our leisure time, not even counting at work, where we spend a lot of our time, we take in 100,000 words every day. Friends, we don't need more information. We don't suffer from a lack of information. We suffer from a lack of guidance because we need to work this thing out, and that needs to be done together. The last one is really a, if this is a buy one, get one free point, we're going to talk about celebration and worship because there's some good overlap here. Celebration, let's simply put it as being present in the moment, acknowledging and enjoying what is good. Is anybody in the room like a self-confessed celebrator? Like, yeah, I see good things happen and I, I take the time to celebrate them. We got, a, we got one. Okay, so get her in your life. We got, we got another one. So most of us are either afraid to raise our hands or not very good at celebrating. And maybe it's both. <laughs> most of us aren't good at celebrating. We're, we're not very good at practicing gratitude. We actually have um, in our house, I didn't mean to tell on us, um, but I'm going to tell on us for a second. We have a gratitude jar, which is awesome. And it's right where you can see it. And it says gratitude on it, so there's no confusion. Um, and then there's a stack of cards that you write, here's what I'm grateful for, and you drop it in the jar. That jar is not very full. <laughs> oh, Amanda just gave me a look like, there's gratitudes in there. There are. There are cards in the jar. <laughs> Point being, even when we've got a jar for this stuff, it's not not like, I don't like see something good, and I'm like, oh, get me to the jar. But the reality is I don't even say like, oh, let me stop for one second and soak this in. Let me celebrate. Like, man, God is good. That was awesome. Did you see that? Oh, my gosh. Can you believe that just happened? You guys, I did that like 700 times last weekend at the game. Did you just see that? Like a maniac. I was celebrating everything. But in my life, I'm terrible at stopping and expressing gratitude and saying, oh, my gosh. Maybe that needs to be our new mantra. Oh my gosh, should you just see that? But the reality is we're not very good at this. It, it, it's like, a, it's, a, it's again, it's like a muscle we've got to build where it's like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm seeing this because I'm paying attention. My eyes are open. I'm aware. I'm looking for the goodness of God around me. And then I'm going to stop and I'm going to say thank you. I'm going to say, wow, whatever that is. <laughs> Obviously, you can tell by my vernacular, it doesn't need to be flowery. <laughs> Just like, ah, oh my gosh. Like, God's like, yeah, yeah, I, I can interpret that, you maniac. Anyways, I've completely kind of lost my spot here. But 
Here's where I was going with that. When we gather, it helps us. It's, a, it's another way to practice this because oftentimes I'm not going to be very good at seeing the way that God's goodness is showing up in my life, but I might be able to see it in yours. And then when I, when I tell you a story about how God showed up, maybe you'll say like, oh, hold on a second. Yeah, God's been active in my life too. I maybe just haven't been paying very close attention or, or whatever that was. Celebrating makes us pay better attention to our lives and also to one another. Because God is in this. He's moving. He's, he's with us. He's for us. He's working it out. We simply need to be aware of it. We need to be paying attention. And we need to stop to express gratitude for it. We need to acknowledge that God is good. And he's working things out in our lives. This is especially true when life is hard. When, when you're in a tough season. When you're in a difficult circumstance when things are looking a little bleak it's hard to express gratitude and we need people more than ever in those moments around us to remind us that God is good we need people to say yeah I've been there too I you know what I've been in a situation where it felt like there was no way out it felt like I was I was done for it felt like there was no good left to be had And let me tell you, God was orchestrating even them. I came out the other side. These are the moments where we experience the power of community. And then we can, sometimes we need people to just be grateful with us and for us and on our behalf. And we need those reminders. Similar um, to celebration and and expressing gratitude is worship. Worship, uh, oftentimes we think about like what just happened behind me, which was rad. And that's important. Worship is orienting ourselves around the goodness and the power of God. This is why we sing these songs about who God is. Because oftentimes we tend to forget who God is in our lives. So we gather and we remind ourselves. And we do it together. And we do it through song, which is a powerful expression. But it doesn't just end because the band walked off the stage. See, worship is something we continue to do, acknowledging that God is God and that I am not. Thank God. That God is in control and I am not. That there is work to be done that he's doing and calling me to do. Worship is about surrender and awe and appreciation and knowing simultaneously that it is not about me, but God cares deeply for me, and he's got a plan for me, and it's bigger than just me. It's all of these things at once. Worship reminds us of that. Worship reminds me who I am, which is just a random dude, but it also reminds me whose I am, which is like the big dude's dude. This is why I don't go off script, guys, because then you hear things like that. <laughs> Well, this worship orients us. It reorients us to who God is in the world and in our lives. When we come together in worship, it connects us to God and it connects us to one another. Just like confession restores relationship to God and one another, worship connects us to God and one another. So we're going to end this morning with, by looking at this story in Acts. It says, Wild story about Paul, uh, these two guys, Paul and Silas. And they find themselves in a little uh, hairy situation here. (laughs) But I want to look at it because it, it talks about this orienting around God and not ourselves. 
or God and not our circumstance or situation in the power of doing that. It's a little long, so bear with me. Acts 16, 22 through 30 says this. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown in a prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. That's a spoiler. The jailer is about to be in trouble. When he received these orders, he put them in an inner cell, don't let these dudes out, and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Cyrus were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer, remember, who had been commanded to guard them carefully, woke up, saw what happened, and drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Paul is saying this to the guy keeping them in the prison. You're good. We're still here. (laughs) The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and trembling fell before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because something's going on here, and I want to make sure to get on the right side of it. Like, this is a wild story. See, if I was in that jail, the story would have gone like this. Sam was crying, asking God to miraculously loosen the stocks, asking for an outer cell, perhaps where there might be light or sign of life. Circumstantially focused, right? Don't act like you guys would have been like them too, singing hymns and whatnot. (laughs) Fine, maybe you would. I don't know. I don't know. I would have been like, yeah, get me out of this situation probably. But what I probably wouldn't have been doing was praising God. I would have been saying, like, what in the world? How did this happen? I just got stripped and beaten with rods. Like, cool, this wasn't part of the plan. Like, what? I, something has gone wrong. But here's the deal. Paul and Silas, they were there preaching about a man who had once been stripped and beaten with rods. They were preaching about this guy who had been killed by the leaders and then who rose again. They knew this circumstance does not define their work. They knew they were called into suffering because their Lord suffered. And so you want to know what they didn't focus on? How the stocks were so dang tight on my feet and how I'm in an inner cell and it reeks and I'm bloody and I'm beaten. Their bodies were broken, but their spirits were not. They worshiped and a miracle happened. And you want to know why that miracle happened? Not just for them to get out of prison. That miracle happened for this words, these words, sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, God was opening up eyes, not just Paul and Silas's, but everybody around. It says, and the prisoners were listening. Then the story actually goes on. The jailer brings him into his home and says, I want my entire family saved. Teach us what you know. Let's get these guys cleaned up. Let's get them food. We have something to learn from them. And then actually what's interesting is later in the story, go back and read it. This story is nuts. Anyways, later in the story, 
they, uh, the jailer gets a call, and they're like, hey, those guys, let them out and get them out of here, and do it quietly. Everybody had made a big scene. Now it's like, let's, handle, let's resolve this quietly. And you want to know what Paul does? Does he leave quietly? No, he picks a fight with them. And he was like, hold on, uh-uh, no, we won't go. It's like, dude, you just got miraculously let out of a jail. Go! Again, I'd be like, yep, see ya. <laughs> Uber's already waiting. I'm out of here. Paul says, like, no, I want to talk to you. <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen. And then they all get nervous. Guess what? Paul had some spiritual swagger. Because when you go through a worship experience, and then that, re that resolves in this miracle happening, and then people are coming to know the Lord, you maybe walk a little different. You maybe have a little bit more confidence in God, even than you did before. Paul had some swagger with him. This confidence in God unlocks things. And we experience that through worship. They were still bloodied and bruised. They were still mistreated. But in their worship, they saw a miracle. Because they lifted their eyes off of their situation and they put them on God. If we can remember one thing, maybe it should be that. We get so focused. I, maybe I'm just talking to myself. I get so focused on this situation, this difficulty, that moment, that thing that that one person said to me that they'll never remember. And I get so in, in all wrapped up in myself, in what worship does. This is why we gather. This is why we sing. So I'm not trying to diminish this at all. Because when we gather, when we sing, we remind ourselves, yeah, 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 God's on the throne, not me. This isn't my deal. Yeah, I've got work to do, for sure. But I'm not the one in control. I respond to the one who is. See, when we practice these corporate disciplines, we set ourselves up for these results. You might not see the miracle uh, the moment you lift a hymn, but when we worship together, when we join groups, when we begin to experience life in community, our hearts are transformed. Our situations may or may not change, but we begin to change. God begins us to draw him to us, and he does a work in our lives. This is why we do it.